again. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It really is always a pleasure to be at uh, Musenberg. Um, just for those who haven't perhaps met me, my name is Roland and I'm one of the pastors at Connect, but I am often and more than often not stationed at our Meadowridge campus. So um, I get to well, I get the privilege of being able to be here every now and then, and we've been doing a series, if you're new, uh, in the book of Hebrews, and that's meant that I've got to come across here quite a few times, and um, we are in chapter 10 of Hebrews in our series, so we are quite a long way in, we are almost finished with our series in the book of Hebrews, and it's been quite a journey so far, it really has been an amazing, amazing journey. But just to recap quickly as we start, um, for, for those who possibly haven't been with us, the book of Hebrews is essentially written by an author whose, whose heart is for uh, believers and to encourage believers with the truths of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and to tell them to hold on and to carry on pursuing their relationship with Jesus despite the persecution that they were facing. So a bunch of, a bunch of Christians... Um, who were facing persecution because of their faith, and a lot of them were letting go of or being tempted to let go of their faith in, this, in the face of persecution. And so the author to the Hebrews writes, and he says, just hold on. Jesus is so much greater. And because a lot of them were Jewish Christians, they were being tempted to revert back to their Jewish faith. And so what he sets out to do in the book of Hebrews is compare Jesus to a lot of what was incredibly important to Jewish people in their culture and in their system of religion or their belief system. And so he says Jesus is so much superior to the angels. And we looked at that in the first week. He says Jesus is so much better than the Mosaic covenant and better than Moses himself. He's, he's better than the Levitical priest. Jesus is our high priest. is so much better than the priests we had in the old system. And Jesus is so much better than the earthly tabernacle, than the temple. Jesus, you know, what they used to do was they used to go into the holy place and then there was the holy of holies and there was that huge thick curtain that divided the holy of holies from the holy place and only one person once a year got to go into that place. He's saying Jesus, what he's done is we've able to exit or enter through him into the holy of holies. He's so much better than the earthly temple. And so what he's done is he's really painted a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and every single section of Hebrews has just been this remarkable, glorifying, exalting of Jesus and it's been such a great journey and it doesn't end uh, in chapter 10. In fact, he continues with this in chapter 10 but he begins to wrap up his Christological and theological arguments in this book and then in chapter 11 and he, he pretty much moves into some practical outworkings uh, for all of us in our daily lives as we consider what he sort of said in the previous 10 chapters. In, um, in chapter 10, what he goes and he does is he begins, to, he begins to compare Jesus with the old sacrifices that were part of the Levitical um, sacrificial system. So the old sacrifices that were needed to be given every single day and once a year on the Day of Atonement, which is Jewish people called Yom, Yom Kippur, um, he goes and he compares Jesus with those sacrifices and he says, he is so much greater than those sacrifices. Jesus is so much better. In fact, he's so much better that he was the perfect sacrifice. He was perfectly obedient and he has done this sacrificial work. That's a little bit too early. If we can go back because everyone's reading. You can just go back. Yep, there we go. We'll get to just now. Jesus is so much better then the sacrificial system that he is perfect and he has done this thing once and for all. Right? And so that's what um, we've entitled the series, but or well, this sermon particularly. 
when I was praying through this and when I was preparing this, I realized that for me particularly, this part of Hebrews was so significant. And I know it's so significant for, and will be significant for a lot of people because so many of us struggle still today in the church, and especially people who don't know Jesus, is a sense in which we struggle with a guilty conscience. A lot of us struggle with it. We've all experienced that where we've done something wrong and we know we've done something wrong and it sits in the back of our mind and, and, and we sort of push it down and suppress it and sweep it under the carpet. But every now and then those ghosts of our past keep coming back and keep coming back. People wonder whether you know, people are going to find out or if, or if anybody knows about what they've done. They're fearful that the truth about what they've done might leak out. Christians experience this, and I know that before I knew Jesus, this was a constant fear of my life, that people would know actually just how really bad I am on the inside. And so constantly living with this facade and this mask on, we're never sure, and this is the more serious one, of, of how it's going to go before God. Some, some of us carry around the scars of our past, and we are convinced that God is still going to hold us accountable for the things that we've done before we knew him. And we live with this insecurity and I really believe that we feel like God is going to punish us for the stuff he's already said you're forgiven for. And we're going to face Jesus one day and he's going to bring up all the dirt and the old laundry. And I, and I feel that what the author to the Hebrews is doing in this chapter is helping people to understand what is so necessary for us as believers to understand and for those people who don't know Jesus to understand, and that is this, that through Christ's obedience and because he was the perfect sacrifice, it is done. It is finished. He has paid the price and there is complete and total forgiveness for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is something that people that were part of the old system were never able to experience. They weren't able to experience the complete and total forgiveness that we're able to experience today. And so that's really what chapter 10 is going to be about, just a bit of a, just a picture of what's going to come. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 10 under four different headings. So there's one heading, once and for all, and then there's four different subheadings. The first one will be foreshadowing. Then we're going to look at the perfect obedience sacrifice, then complete and total forgiveness and then our response. That's how we're going to break it up. But let me just pray before we, before we get stuck in. Father, this morning, I just want to, want to honor you and honor your word. I want to thank you for the prayers that have been prayed. Lord, for the worship that we've been able to sing. For the encouragements that have been brought. And Lord, now as we sit under your word, I pray that it would wash us, that it would encourage us. And that it would energize us, Lord Jesus, to live more faithful, more obedient lives. Free free from guilt, free from condemnation, free, Lord, from feeling like you're going to hold over us the things that Jesus has already paid for. We pray for that in Jesus' name. So we're going to start our first section under foreshadowing. We're going to read from verse 1 to chapter 4. We're going to read and we're going to unpack, read and we're going to unpack. So here's what the author says in chapter 10, verse 1 to 4. It says this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers who would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
In this section, what the author argues is that the previous system, the old covenant and the sacrificial system, was just a foreshadowing. It was just a shadow of the stuff that was to come. And now typically when we think about a shadow, we think about a negative thing. You know, someone's lurking in the shadows or you see a shadow, it's a bad thing. This, this doesn't necessarily come with that idea that this is a bad thing. Shadow isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes we can learn a lot of stuff from a shadow, right? You can Pretty much sometimes, if the sun's right, tell how tall a person is, whether they're wearing a cap or not, whether they've got a backpack on. You know, you can sort of determine their posture by the shadow, although it can be skewed and it can be a little bit, you know, subjective depending on where you're standing, how the sun's shining. But you can learn some stuff from a shadow. It's not necessarily bad. And so what the author is saying here is not that the Levitical system was bad or that the law was bad or evil. He's simply saying this, that the shadow is not the substance of the thing casting the shadow. So if I'm standing and the sun's at my back and you see my shadow, you can pretty much make out that I'm there, but my shadow is not me. It's not the substance of what's casting the shadow. And so he's saying about the law that it is just a shadow. It's insufficient and it's incomplete. It's just, it gives you an idea of greater things that are coming, things that will be able to cleanse us totally. Things that will be able to completely do the work that this sacrificial system thing um, hints at. The sin sacrifices of the law essentially are just a shadow of Christ's sacrifice that had come and completed the work that the Levitical system had promised but was never able to fulfill. Instead of cleansing people from their sins, the law acted, he says, more like a mirror. It's more, like, it's more like you're looking into a mirror and it's an annual reminder. See, the people of the Old Testament lived constantly with this reminder of their sin and the need to atone for their sin with blood sacrifices. And they would do this on a daily um, schedule and they would also do it once a year with the festival or with the celebration or the ceremony that they called Yom Kippur where they would celebrate the forgiveness of sins where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and do that on behalf of the nation. The covenant sacrifices were meant to be a visual and actually gruesome and graphic representation of the seriousness of sin and the need for blood to be spilt and how it was never really complete because they'd have to keep doing it over and over and over again. And the author says, just remember, as you consider Jesus and then you look back at the old system, it was never finished. You always had to keep doing this. And that was evidenced by the fact that year and year out again, these rituals had to keep happening over and over again. And that stands as proof that your sin was never really removed. It had to keep happening over. And the author then says plainly, listen guys, it had to keep going over and over. It had to keep being done because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove or to take away sin from a person. Animal blood has no permanent usefulness when it comes to us being forgiven for the stuff that we've done before the Lord. God instead designed this, this system. He designed this system and this animal sacrifice system to point ahead to his provision, to point ahead and to show people what was coming and to have them feel horribly, you know, out or undercated for by the blood of doves, bo uh, bull, bo boats, bulls and goats. Right? As a man sacrifices a bull and as he sacrifices a goat, so he feels inadequacy of that blood spilt. But then when Jesus comes as God, 
He is infinitely worthy and infinitely able. And as man, he presents this pure sacrifice to God that is wholly capable and is in fact an overpayment for our sin. And he starts encouraging them with that. He says, don't, don't look back to the sacrificial system and think that that was worth anything. That was just a shadow. It was just a foreshadowing. Jesus is the substance, the real thing. Jesus is the one who fulfills this thing perfectly. His sacrifice was enough. Let's not go back. That's point one. Then, then, then in verses 6 to 10, he moves on to unpacking the fact that Jesus was the perfect obedient sacrifice. So we're going to read that together. And unpack that. He says, therefore, because Jesus has come, because the law was just a foreshadowing, he says, when Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What's really interesting is that the author puts into the mouth of Jesus words that were recorded in Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8. You may not realize this, but what this does is it establishes the pre-existence of Jesus. What the author is saying there in a very subtle way is Jesus was, is, and always will be. These words were spoken as prophetically as if they were spoken by Jesus. And they were spoken by Jesus before the creation of the world. And he says, Jesus is God. And so he's the one who declares this. And so when Jesus comes, he fulfills this prophetic utterance that we see in the Psalms. But it also has a whole bunch more implications for us. There's three really important things and powerful points that the author makes in verses 5 to 10. The first one is this. Not only is Jesus preeminent, not only is he God before and God now and God evermore, but the cross was the direct will of God. This is such an amazing point. The cross was not an accident that God had to somehow you know, work around. It wasn't this unforeseen tragedy that just happened. It was not a temporary setback that God had to work for good as creation worked itself out. Rather, the cross was God's predetermined plan before the beginning of time to save people from their sin. When you think about that and you contemplate that, that is an amazing thought. That before Jesus creates anything, he sees you and me. And often what I love about this is often people will use the fact that evil exists as a way to sort of refute the idea that God exists. I think it just shows the character and the heart and the love of God for those who will step into relationship with him. Because he knows how much it is going to hurt. He knows the pain and the price he's going to have to pay. And he sees it all before he creates. And yet he sees those who will walk in his way and he says, I choose you. And because you will choose me, I create. And I expose myself to heartache and pain, death and crucifixion just so that I can gain you. It's just such a wonderful thought to think about our king doing that for us. So the cross wasn't an accident. The Son of God comes into this world to fulfill the desire of the Father so that he can have us. Uh, 
you just think about what Jesus gets in terms of his payment, right? I'm not saying that we're useless and worthless, but if you think about who he is and what he gets, I think maybe sometimes I feel like he's a little bit shortchanged, right? But yet he loves us and he makes us into something that is able to be in his presence and able to do his will. By coming into this world specifically to go to the cross, Jesus not only provides a perfect sacrifice for us, but he provides the perfect example of what it looks like to be obedient to the Father. That's what he does. The author repeats twice that Jesus says, I've come to do your will. I've come to do your will. He, in Luke chapter, this won't come up, but Luke chapter 9, 51, he says he, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus had a, had a one-way mission. He was, he was focused on the cross. He says, not my will, but yours be done. When he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, Jesus, he says, Father, take this cup from me. If it's possible that you can take this from me, take it from me, but not my will be done, yours. It's because of his predetermined obedience that we learn that no matter how difficult it is to be obedient to Jesus, we need to determine to be obedient to Jesus. Right? Being obedient to the Lord is not something that you make in the moment when you're being tempted. It's something that you can follow in and walk in is obedience when you're being tempted. But we decide beforehand, I decide now that I want to be obedient to the Lord, regardless of whether I'm being tempted now or not. Right? The second thing that is so significant about these verses is the fact that Jesus' obedience to God's will at the cross set aside the Old Testament sacrifices once and for all. That's what he unpacks in these, these verses. He says, he takes away the first, which is the Old Testament sacrifices, to establish the second, which is the will of God and Christ dying on the cross. When the psalmist states that God did not desire or take pleasure in, in sacrifices, it reflects a frequent theme in the Old Testament, that God does not desire outward sacrifices, but a repentant and renewed heart. God is displeased when people go through outward motions, when we become legalistic, we try and cleanse ourselves with practices that are only outward and physical instead of inward and spiritual. When the Jewish people thought that circumcision set them apart and made them God's people and made them holy, the Lord says, don't, I don't want the physical outwork, I want your heart to be circumcised. I, I, I want the inside to be changed. In modern terms, it means going to church and thinking that just being here is going to somehow make God love you more or cleanse you. Or that taking communion while still harboring anger in your heart or sin in your heart is going to please God. Or that being disobedient to God in whatever it is that He's called you to do and yet still feel like you're able to bring authentic worship to Him. That's one of those things that we can relate to nowadays. But the author's main point to his original readers is this, is that Christ's sacrifice at the cross permanently replaces the Old Testament sacrificial system. And now it's about being baptized in the Spirit, being, being reborn again spiritually and having your heart cleansed once and for all. Not going through these outward motions of sacrifices in the physical, thinking that that has some power to heal and to cleanse. The third point he makes is this, is that Christ's obedience to God's will at the cross, when we receive it, gives us a perfect standing before God once and for all. The author of the Hebrews uses the word sanctified or, or made holy to refer to an inward cleansing, sort of tied to the second point. And we've, been, we've been made fit for the presence of God because of Jesus. The Old Testament sacrifices could never do that. 
No one could just freely come into the presence of God. It was one man on one day of the year. And even he went in there with fear and trepidation because he wasn't sure if he was coming out. So the high priest, I don't know if you know, would wear a robe with bells and tassels on the end of it and there would be a rope tied to his leg and he would go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies and the rope would be tied to his legs and the bells would be on the end of his robe so that when he was moving, the bells were moving. If the bells stopped moving, no one wanted to go in to get him because they would die too. If he hadn't cleansed himself properly, he would die. So the rope was on his leg, so they would pull him out with the rope. Jesus has made access into the presence of God so easy and so free. I think sometimes we take that for granted. But he's saying to the Jewish people who've now become Christians, don't go back to that old way where you were limited and you couldn't just enter the kingdom. You couldn't, you couldn't just enter the Holy of Holies. Because of Jesus, you can come freely into that place any time on any day for however long it is that you want to be there. Whereas before it wasn't possible. You can't compare the two. There's this word or this phrase that he uses, ha, have been made holy. We, we have been made holy. In, in the original Greek, it's, a, it's, it's what they call um, a perfect tense. Right? which means it's, it's a past perfect tense. It means that the action is ongoing. So we've been made holy and we are being made holy. You are saved and are being saved and will be saved. Compared with the often repeated process of sacrifices in the Old Testament where people weren't really convinced that their sins were forgiven or couldn't be sure, there was a sense of, I offer, but now I need to re-offer. I offer and now I need to re-offer. It's like having to say, I don't know if you've ever had to say sorry to somebody for something. Never. <laughs> I, <coughs> I've often had to apologize. <coughs> I remember as a little boy, I, <coughs> I had a crush on a girl that lived across the road. And um, I never really used to get to see her. I don't know what I would have done if I did see her. I was too nervous to say anything. But one day I devised a plan to see her. I don't really think it through that well. So what would happen is they had an electric gate, and every single time the electric gate got stuck, she would come down, I don't know why, and like press the remote or do whatever else. And so I thought, oh, let me get the gate stuck. <laughs> so, so I was outside on the lawn playing rugby and, and, and kicking the ball in hopes that she would come out, and their the gate opened, and it stayed open. And I thought, if this gate closes and doesn't get stuck, she's not going to come out. So I went and I put some stones on the railing of the, of the gate. And the gate started to close, and it didn't get stuck on the stone. It ramped the stone and came off the rail and started going and then completely <laughs> crashed into the road. And so I ran. I ran. I ran into the house. I forget what I did. I pretended like I wasn't there. But um, I had a really lovely nanny named Patricia, and she, was, she would always look after me because my parents worked full-time, and I used to come home, and she would look after me. But she was outside with her friends. And she knew I had done this. She saw me doing it. So when my mom came home, she told my mom, and I had to go over to the neighbors and apologize. This was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. As a young boy going over then, like I was just praying that they wouldn't ask me why I did it. Because <laughs> then I felt like I'd have to lie about why I did it. They didn't ask me why, but I got to say sorry. And here was the great thing. I got to have some supper with them. It was still embarrassing. I said sorry. It was all done and was all fixed. I can imagine how terrible it would have been if I had to go the next day and say sorry again. Because when they woke up in the morning, they would have felt just as angry or just as upset. And then I say sorry and then it's done and then the next day I've got to go do it again. And then the next day I've got to go do it again. 
And it's this perpetual ongoing cycle where it's never enough to just say sorry. I've just got to keep saying sorry and keep saying sorry and keep saying sorry. And that's essentially what the old sacrifice system did is you keep having to say sorry. You keep having to say sorry. There was never really any confidence that this was done except for when Jesus comes. Jesus goes, it's done. It's done. And I've said sorry to the Father for you on your behalf. <clears throat> it is done. <clears throat> the third point is, is this of our message that there is complete and total forgiveness. Here's what, here's what the author says. Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duty. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest had offered once and for all one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. In verse 11 and 12, this is beautiful contrast of the priests of the old covenant who were never sitting Always standing, always standing because there's always work for them to do. And then in verse 12, it says Jesus got to sit down. In the sanctuary of the old times, there were no seats. There was no sitting for the priest because their work was never done. But then Jesus comes and he pays the price and it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That sitting down is usually significant. Jesus is not lazy. It just means it's done. There's no more standing necessary. And he intercedes for us at the right hand of God. He hasn't stopped working, but his sacrificial work, the sacrificing, the paying of the price is done. The standing priests, you can almost feel the futility of what they were doing. There's this constant need to try and do what was only possible for Jesus to do. The author could have ended there. He could have ended at verse 12, but then he adds this. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. But why does he include this? Why does he include that? Well, there's three possible reasons. The first is this. It's possible that the readers that he was writing to were, were growing discouraged and, and had been tempted or were being taunt, teased with the fact that maybe the cross um, resembled the defeat of God. And that because Jesus hadn't come back, or wasn't coming back, or didn't look like he was coming back soon, that maybe they were believing in a God that was actually dead and not real. Perhaps uh, they were being discouraged because they were facing persecution and martyrdom because of their faith. And so he writes and he says, just hold on. Don't worry. Jesus has done this work and it is finished and he's waiting for the right time to come back. And when he comes back, and he quotes from the Psalms, he says he, his enemies will become his footstool. He writes to them and encourages them. Jesus has not lost the victory. It is his. Just because he hasn't come back again doesn't mean it isn't finished. The second reason he might have added that is as a warning, as a subtle warning to those that if they abandoned their faith, they would be placing themselves on the wrong side. They would be placing themselves on the losing side in history and make themselves enemies of Jesus. The third reason is that he wants to remind them that there's a coming kingdom and the king is coming. And it's a kingdom that's going to surpass the beauty and supremacy and glory of any other kingdom that has ever been. And that's the kingdom of Jesus. 
And you ask this question, what is he waiting for? He's waiting and he's coming, I'm encouraged, but what is he waiting for? And it's, sorry again, this won't come up, but in, but in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. Our King is coming again. But this just reveals his heart. He's coming and he's established his kingdom and he's going to establish his kingdom. He's saving and he's making his name glorious and he's calling sons and daughters into the kingdom. And the longer he waits, the more people come. The longer he waits, the more people enter. And we can sometimes be so selfish with ourselves and go, Jesus, if only you would come back now. But then I think about my family and there's my mom and there's my brother and there's my uncle and my cousins. And then I think about the rest of the world that we're in and the people around us and culture that so desperately needs the love of God like Enika was praying. So desperately need to see Jesus. Jesus is waiting. He's coming again. But he's holding out to the very last moment so that more people can enter the kingdom. And the last thing the author does in this section, we're going we're to wrap up with this. She says this, this is the covenant I will make with them. He quotes from Jeremiah, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on, my mind, on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. He writes this, I think, because he's preempting an argument from people who are still in Judaism. And the argument would have been this. When you take away the law and the sacrificial system, what you're doing is you're paving a way for lawless living. And he says, no, the, this has been foretold. There's a, there's a prophetic writing in the Old Testament that speaks to the fact that God's people are not going to be marked with outward obedience necessarily only, but with inward obedience. And because we do away with the old sacrificial system doesn't mean that people are now going to become worse. In fact, you were just as bad when you were doing it because it was outward. God wants inward change. And then he adds a part that is directly to his point. He says, God will purify us from our hearts, our insides out, and their sins and lawless deeds I'll remember no more. And God's not remembering doesn't mean that he's a God who forgets. It just means that he chooses not to hold against us the things that we so deserve to have held against us. Because of Jesus, he forgets and he doesn't bring it up again. And that's why he says, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin left because the ultimate price has been paid. You can't offer more than Jesus. You can't be cleansed more than Jesus cleanses you. And that's from the inside out. Jesus completely fulfilled the Old Testament. Jesus completely fulfills every requirement of the law and presents us before the Lord holy and pure. And our response needs to be this. It says in verse 19 through 25, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with the full assurance of that, that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some of the inhabitants of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is where he sort of lands with the exhortation and the encouragement because of what's gone before. He says, because Jesus is so perfect, because he totally outdoes and strips completely away from us or away the Levitical sacrificial system and he fulfills it more completely and he makes us holy. Don't go back and this is how you don't go back. Draw near to him. Move close to God because you can do it with a sincere heart. In full assurance of faith, move towards him. Don't waver. Don't doubt. doesn't mean we can't struggle with doubt, but just know that Jesus has done this. Draw near to him. Remember that your hearts have been sprinkled and cleaned. Remember that your conscience has been cleaned. And when you start to remember the stuff of your past, that's the enemy or your flesh trying to hold on to stuff that Jesus has already ridded you of. He says, press into his presence. Hold fast to the confession that you have. Hold fast with hope, without wavering. Stand firm. Do this thing. It's an active stand firm and keep on standing firm. Consider how to encourage one another and stimulate one another into love and to good deeds. We, we don't do this thing by ourselves. As a result of what Jesus has done, we, the church, need to be encouraging one another. And don't forsake meeting together with one another. So many people have an issue with the church and they, you know, I've heard so many people going, oh, I, have, I have a problem with institutionalized church and I have a problem with a lot of the stuff we do as a body and as a church because I think our humanness and our sinfulness gets involved. But it's like any family. You're going to have your ugly stuff to deal with. You're going to have people doing stuff that you don't agree with. But it's how we work that stuff out that displays the glory of God and the love that we have for one another. Can we love each other despite our differences? Can we work together despite our differences? I think we can. And I think that as we do that, we show people that the community of believers is different to any other community established by culture. Right? We've got to work stuff out. We don't run away from it. You cannot be a Christian by yourself and effectively fulfill the will of God. We don't have to have a massive church. Jesus says we're two or more gathered. There I am. And that doesn't mean you can't be a Christian and be isolated and, 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 and have no one else around you and all of a sudden you're going to fall away from the Lord. It just means that God's desire is that whenever possible we meet together and you surround yourself with other Christians. Often, we don't run away. We deal with our stuff. We love one another. And so he's encouraging them to do that because if they didn't do that, the chances are they would have fallen away. They would have denied Jesus and gone back to a faith that was easier for them to embrace. Right, where they wouldn't have faced persecution. Just reading in the news lately, there's so much stuff that's coming to the fore and so much stuff that we're going to have to deal with as a community right, in our culture and in our world today. So much stuff. And if we aren't holding each other accountable and if we aren't encouraging one another and if we aren't holding fast to the truths and the core doctrines of our faith, a lot of us are going to slip away. A lot of us, if we don't encourage one another, a lot of us, if we aren't being encouraged by one another, are going to face a whole bunch of persecution in a way that we wouldn't otherwise have faced it if we were in a community together. And that's not to be, you know, uh, foreboding or sort of preach doom and gloom. It's just to say this is the reality of what it's going to mean to follow Jesus. And there's nothing more glorious than following Jesus. But it's not always going to be easy. So I just want to pray for us and just encourage you to to remember what Jesus is and who he is and what he's done and to continue to hold on fast to your faith. Don't, don't, don't give up meeting together.
Go into His presence. Seek strength. Seek His help. Be empowered by the Spirit. And let's live for the glory of God. Amen. Father, we just want to thank You for Your Word and just want to I just want to honor you and praise you that, Jesus, you've made a way. We remember, Lord, the futility of, of offering animal sacrifices and, and, and what they faced. And, and, Lord, how it was never complete in the Old Testament. This desire to, to rid oneself of a, of a guilty conscience and of the sin that Lord, entangles us, brings us down, and causes us to dishonor you. And Lord, we want to thank you that we get to live on this side of the cross. And we can look back and go, it is done, it is finished. And that Lord, we can honestly live with a guilt-free conscience, knowing that we've been purified, knowing that it is done, knowing that when we wake up in the morning, Lord, each and every morning, regardless of the state of our hearts, and there's a place where we can come where the price has been paid. The forgiveness has been given. The work has been done. And we have a great high priest, a king who intercedes for us. Lord, may we be brothers and sisters, sons and daughters who live out of that place, who are confident about our standing before you. Who are secure, Lord, that, and, and, and who know that you love us and that we, we are yours. Lord, regardless of what we face in the future, regardless of what people say about the church, and who we are as Christians, God, may we love you and hold firm to our faith and not go back to our old ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. We'd love to pray for you if, if you would love prayer. Otherwise, have a great Sunday. And